All right, so this morning, we want to start our, our study in the book of Ephesians. And I, and I have to admit, just at the outset, I'm a little overwhelmed because there's, this is like the Swiss Alps of the Bible, in my opinion. And I just know that no matter how, how hard I try, and whatever effort I make, I'm going to leave some meat on the bone. And man, I'm sorry. Just extend me grace already. I, uh, I feel overwhelmed. There's so much richness in this book. And there's my disclaimer getting in. This, this morning, though, I, I don't want to dive into the passage, any passage in Ephesians. I want to set the stage. I want to give kind of the big picture background of the book so that when we come into the book, it's kind of like what we're doing right now is we're going to take a look at the forest this morning. Starting next week, we're going to dive into specific trees. We're going to dive into the weeds. We're going to get into the grass. We're going to get into short grass, tall grass. I mean, we're going to, we're going to really try to get into the details, but this morning is not about details. It's about setting the stage and setting the context so that we can build off of that, hopefully in our interpretation, so that we can understand this book correctly. I think it's a legitimate question that I get whenever I start a new series, a topical series, a book series, anything like that. People will say, well, well, why are you teaching on that? And it's a great question, right? There's 66 books in the Bible. Why, why did you choose this one? Why did you go to that one? Why did you teach topically? Well, well the first answer to that, before I give you my specific reasons for Ephesians, is we want to be a church that at least in our attempt, we want to teach the whole council of God. It's so easy. In fact, you're, you're going to see how easy it is to just slide into a New Testament epistle written by Paul. That's, that's fun. I mean, that's what, we, that's what we enjoy. But there's also value in teaching the Old Testament. There's also value in considering different topics that we all face in life. That's why we spent the last 11 weeks going over eternal security and that topic, because we think that's so important to establish us in the gospel. But we're, we're bouncing back now because before eternal security, you remember we taught an Old Testament book. I taught the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're bouncing back to the new. And so we try to do that conceptually, not only on Sunday mornings in the sermon time, but we also take that same approach in our Sunday school class because we want to teach the whole counsel of God. That's our heart behind doing these kind of things. But why Ephesians specifically? This is my number one reason. It, it, there's other reasons here, but I, but I don't know how to emphasize this enough. As believers, you need to know who you are in Jesus Christ, period. You have an identity card in your wallet, in your purse, that describes who you are in Jesus Christ. It's described here in the book of Ephesians. You possess it, you own it, and we didn't know it. Because that card will get you to places that you never dreamed that you could get. The, the resources that you have access through, through your identification with Jesus Christ, are off the charts otherworldly. In fact, you know, believers need to hear this often. They need to be reminded of it continually. And these great truths of your position in Jesus Christ need to dominate your thinking, not just slide into your thinking once in a while. This needs to drive how we live our Christian life. This needs to be a mindset that we have in our Christian life. In fact, it's essential to your ongoing health as a believer. As we walk in this morning, you know, most of us, we at least try to clean up for church, right? I mean, if you're not like a little boy, I mean, you probably don't care, but I mean, all the rest of us try to clean up in some ways to come to church. And yet let's be honest with ourselves. Some of you walk through that door this morning and you're an absolute wreck. 
internally this morning. You've got something going on that you would not even feel comfortable sharing with your closest friend because either you're so embarrassed or you're so overwhelmed by it or you feel like you shouldn't struggle with this, you shouldn't struggle with that. If we're being honest with ourselves, that's how some of us walked in this morning. Just like that, we had lots of stuff on our mind. And I'm here to tell you that you have resources to deal with anything that you're going through that are off the charts. You have things that you possess that you probably don't even know that you possess, and we need to know what those are. We need to take those into our daily life. And that's what part of the book of Ephesians is going to play out for us. You know, one of the things that's so ironic about the book of Ephesians is we get into chapter one, verse three, and it says, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That means that as you sit here today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you lack no blessing. You lack no blessing. That's why it's tragic when people leave the place of blessings to go look for something they already have. Imagine the tragedy of a woman preparing a meal for for a large group and saying, oh, I've got to go to the store to get all this stuff when she's got the stuff in her pantry already to make it. You imagine the amount of stress that would relieve from that woman? Imagine the tragedy that plays out in the lives of believers all around the globe, striving for blessings that they already possess, striving, begging, pleading through tears to the Lord just to simply bless them in this area, and they've already got it. And what they need more than that blessing is to know how to appropriate what they've already got. And that's the great news of the book of Ephesians. This week, I'm gonna have Josh post on our church Facebook page a list that somebody at a church in Connecticut put together. And it says 215 things that are now true of you that you're saved. Because you're saved, there are these 215 things that are true of you with verses attached to it. And this is what I love about his list, this man that put this together, is he's got 216 there. He's got 216 right there on that list of 215. And guess what 216 says? Fill in more if you find them. You know what I love about that is because when you get to Ephesians chapter three and he talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ, that means you can't even trace them to the source. You can't exhaust them. So you know what? 215 might turn into 216 and 217 and 218 and a million times a bazillion, right? That's how we used to talk as little kids to try to emphasize something, right? A million bazillion. But that's your riches in Christ. That's what we possess. Man, this is so important. And I just want to go over that. In fact, what we see from the text, you are in union with Jesus Christ. One of the songs we sang this morning said something about that. Being unified with Christ, I don't die. Do we understand the significance of what God did when he took you, when you put your faith in the finished work of Christ and unified you with the Messiah. Jesus doesn't die anymore. Thus, because you're unified to him, you will not die again. You'll live forever. I mean, there is some practical outworkings of this truth. It's not just some theological nonsense that we talk about in seminary. This is where the rubber hits the road for us. And we've got to embrace and understand this truth. You know, if you let me finish this point. The, the phrase in Christ or a derivative, in him, in whom, referring to Christ, is used 38 times in this book. Six chapters, 
38 times. I mean, do the math. Chapter one, we're going to see it, I think, like 19 times, 19 in chapter one. And we'll talk more about why that's going to be so significant. So if, if you struggle with value and worth and purpose in this life, if that's something that you think about a lot, or let's say that something happens in your world, somebody says an unkind word, you don't get that promotion at work, you don't do as well uh, on, a, on something in school, you, you seem to make a friend, but then that friend leaves you at some point, and it seems to be the pattern of your life, and you find your value in all these things, I've got good news for you. You will never, well, this isn't good news. You will never find value in those things. Those things are fleeting. They always shift. They always move about. They are not lasting. They're not permanent, but I've got good news. There is something permanent for you that will take your understanding of your value, your worth, your purpose in this life, and it's unchanging. And you can only find that in Jesus Christ. This is so key. If you struggle with who you are, your identity, if you're always looking for somebody else to validate who you are and your value, I've got better news for you. The one who created everything has already determined your value and your worth. In fact, he sent his only begotten son to take your place on the cross so that you wouldn't have to face that death penalty. And then he rose him from the grave. He didn't stop there. When you believed in him, he united you to him. And so when he looks to his right hand and he sees Jesus Christ, you are seated with him in the heavenlies. That's what this book is gonna teach us. So I want you to picture that. Every time God the Father looks at Jesus Christ and smiles, he's smiling at you. You're right there with him. That's where your acceptance is found. That's where your value is founded because nothing can dethrone Jesus Christ from the highest place of value in the universe. You know what? Your value is never in question in the courts of heaven. Man, that is just good news. And we're gonna see that play out in the book of Ephesians. You know, another reason, these are just my reasons. Why are we going to Ephesians? Ephesians describes the high value and uniqueness of the church. You know, we don't often recognize how near and dear the church is to the heart of Jesus Christ. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us can, we can take or leave church. We can just take or leave it. In fact, some of the biggest frustrations I've ever had in my life with people have come through church. Don't say amen too loud. You might hurt somebody's feelings. That's the truth of the local church. That's the truth. We're all, in that sense, porcupines, right? We're going to poke each other once in a while. I mean, it just kind of happens. But never confuse the way you feel with how Jesus feels about the church. Never confuse your value and what you think you get out of it with what Jesus values and what he wants you to get out of it. Never confuse it. This is so important as we see this in the book of Ephesians. And finally, the third reason why Ephesians, Ephesians sets forth the practical means by which the church is to fulfill the Great Commission. Every church that, you know, is not completely liberal and lost their mind will tell you that their purpose is the Great Commission, right? We, we hear that a lot. We're, we're going to be a gospel-centered church. We're going to be a Great Commission center. We want to carry out the Great Commission, the great news about Ephesians, it's going to give us the, the practical wisdom to know how to do that. How to do that. What, how, does, 
How does Jesus Christ want to do that? Not let's go to the expert church growth strategy guy, guru that grew his church from 300 to 8,000. Let's go hear what he has to say. Who cares what he has to say? Because we can go directly to the source. We don't need to, to talk to somebody else about how you did it. In fact, only Jesus knows will that growth last or even be rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. It looks pretty cool to me. I mean, you know, fog machines and lights flashing around and a big parking lot and a huge, beautiful building. I mean, it looks cool. It looks like that success. But again, we're not here to evaluate their success or our success. We're here just to say, you know what? Ephesians gives us the principles to know how to fulfill the Great Commission. And so let's just be about that. Let's just take our eyes off of everything else. Keep them on Jesus Christ. Keep them on his mission. Keep it on his vision. You know, one of the things I love about Ephesians is it challenges this concept of the cultural church. And you know what the cultural church is? The cultural church emphasizes this clergy-laity distinction. The clergy, you know, the, the, the guys up front. In many churches, they, they wear their pajamas, you know, when they preach kind of deal. So you, you, the clergy, the laity, the, the average people, and then the special people. And you, you see this distinction the book of Ephesians just, just knocks that in the teeth, just kicks that idea right in the teeth. That's not the church. And yet in America, we gravitate toward that model. You know what? In Liberia, they gravitate toward that model. Anywhere on the planet Earth, people will gravitate toward that model. Let's just show up. Let's listen. Let's pay the professionals to do the work of the ministry. Then we'll go home and do our lives the way that we want to do our lives. And I'm here to tell you, it's not to put pressure on you. It's just to say that, that God's got something else designed for you. Something that will give you eternal purpose and lasting value. See, we're looking for it all out here. And, and right here in the local church, there's a centralized opportunity to be everything that God wants you to be. And what do we want in life? Don't we, I mean, wouldn't we sign off on that statement? Like, I want to be what God wants me to be. I'd be like, hey, we're, we're, we're taking a petition around. If you want to be everything God wants you to be, would you sign it? We would have everyone sign that sheet. And yet when it comes out practically, it's like, how does that, how does that work out? Well, Ephesians is going to tell us that. You know, a, pa a funny pastor from yesteryear said the average church is like along with pneumonia. There's only a few cells that are actually doing the breathing, you know, and, and it's true. There are many churches like that. And, you know, we want to get to the point, not only in our local church, but we'd love to see this in, in churches around the world, breathing the same air, functioning with one another. So because guess what happens when I quit, when my body has trouble breathing, what, do, what, how does my, what does my activity level go? It downs, it goes down. I start getting a little bit more breath in my lungs and, well, not me. I've never been a long distance runner, but some people can run long distances, right? You get a little bit more breath in your lungs. This is what we're talking about here. The Ephesians sets forth the heart of Jesus Christ and how his church will fulfill his commission. And here it is. It's real simple. Gifted men given to the body of Christ to equip the saints who have a ministry designed for them by God according to their skill set and gifting. They don't have to be the pastor. They don't have to be the missionary. They have to be them. Can you be you? It's harder than you think. Because so many of us get caught tripping up on ourselves, trying to be somebody else, 
trying to do something else than what we're designed for. You know what? You are designed and created for a purpose. We're gonna see that in Ephesians 2.10. You are God's masterpiece, not because you're a pastor, not because you're a missionary, but because you're a child of God. You're God's masterpiece. You've got a role. You've got a function. He wants to accomplish something in your life. Don't take that as pressure. Take that as a privilege. It's a high calling. It's something exciting. And guess what? The local church is designed to bring you together, to equip you. Now go do you. Go be you, walking by means of the Spirit. How does that look? Everyone needs to figure that out as they walk by faith. But you know what? The good news is that's what the local church is all about. We're gonna learn that in the book of Ephesians. You know, so many times, you know, people come to church and they, and I get it. I, okay, I, and part of me gets it. Part of me doesn't based on the book of Ephesians. But the mindset in cultural Christianity is I come to church to see what I can get out of church. And if I don't get out of church what I wanna get out of it, I'm gonna go down the road to find somewhere else where I can get what I'm looking for out of it. This church scratched my itch, but now they're scratching too hard. They're scratching too consistently. They're not really hitting the spot anymore. I'm gonna find somebody else that's got a really good fingernail to hit that spot. And that's how people view church. What's in it for me? Instead of the way I believe we should use and view church, and that's what's God's part for me in this? Does he want me here? And so it's not about, is the church good for you necessarily? That may be true. You know, obviously you want to find a church that's teaching the word of God, that emphasizes the finished work of Christ. I mean, there's some things you want in a church. But the ultimate question is not, is it good for you, but are you good for her? What about you and your response to the local church? And that's what we're going to see in the book of Ephesians. And you know, this is exactly how Jesus Christ duplicates and replicates himself. This is how discipleship happens. Disciple making of other disciple makers. It's all found in this process. It's a simple yet often ignored process, which is just so key. And so we're going to see this in the book of Ephesians. Some fun quotes about Ephesians. This is by Dr. Tom Constable. Ephesians is an exposition of one of the most important statements that Jesus ever uttered during his earthly ministry. That statement is in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. It's a further explanation of that statement. This whole book is. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so subjective, so interested in ourselves, so egocentric, Having forgotten God and having become so interested in ourselves, we become miserable and wretched. We spend our time in shallows and in miseries. The message, the great theme of this epistle is designed to bring us back to God, to humble us before God and to enable us to see our true relationship to him. Raymond Brown says, among the Pauline writings, those written by Paul, only Romans can match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. So you know what my prayer for this series is? It comes, well, that's one of, one of the prayers, is that we would be influenced by the teaching in this book, that you would actually be occupied and influenced and that it would overtake our thinking and influence as we study through this book. You always leave the best for last, right? This is the best to me. Uh, Harry Ironside. Anyone heard of Harry Ironside? Oh, yeah. I love this quote. This, he says, is a challenging question of the book of Ephesians. Do you possess your possessions? We are far richer 
then we realize all things are ours and yet how little we appropriate. Do you possess your possessions? Maybe since we are saying that in a present tense, that are you possessing your possessions today? Are you enjoying what you have in Jesus Christ? What a great question. I mean, that, that to me could, I think that might come up a few more times in the study. Do you possess your possessions? Let's move quickly through some sections here. Authorship. Most everybody agrees in, in terms of conservative scholars that Paul wrote these and that it's a grouping with three other epistles that were sent out about the same time when Paul was in prison in Rome under house arrest. So these four, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians, and then Ephesians are considered the, the prison epistles. You'll hear them labeled that way. During this time, Paul was most likely under house arrest. He lived in his own rented quarters under guard by Roman soldiers. Most likely it was the Praetorian Guard. Now, those of you that just aren't aware of Roman history, that's totally fine. The reason we say most likely is because anytime a prisoner came from out of the area, they typically were put under house arrest. They were guarded by the Praetorian Guard, which was, which was actually Caesar's elite bodyguards. That's the Praetorian Guard. So it's like the secret service, you know? So you get this criminal coming from out of town. He's gonna be guarded by the secret service version, you know, the, the Roman version of the secret service. And the way they would do it is they would make the prisoner rent his own apartment. They would send the guards over there and they would work on shifts. And every, I think it's six hours, they would handcuff themselves to the prisoner. And then when they got off shift, they would undo the handcuff and the next guy would get in, they'd handcuff him to the prisoner. And that's how that worked. Most likely Paul experienced something like this. He was probably taken to an apartment. They, they are known in Rome as insulae. They're multi-storied apartment housing blocks. What's, what's kind of ironic is if anyone's ever heard of the fire of, of Rome, the, the Nero's fire, basically, part of the reason it caught fire and took, it was because of these insulae. They were built so close to one another. They were built out of flammable material. So once fire caught, if a wind blew a certain way, it could take down an entire block. Or in the case of Nero's fire, took down most of the city. And so Paul was most likely in one of these. They were very dangerous. There was no building codes. You know, it's funny. We, we get all upset in our day about building codes, don't we? If anyone's ever been part of a building project, oh, that electrician, you know, that, oh, that inspector, you know, he's going to make us do this. And we always think it's ridiculous. You know, in those days, there weren't building codes. And so guys would just throw five-story buildings up with no kind of structure to support it. And all these insulate, many of them were so dangerous, they would collapse. They would be subject to floods. And again, they would just catch fire at the littlest amount of sparks. So it's kind of dangerous even for Paul to be here. But this is most likely where he was when he wrote. In terms of the date of writing, we place it just with the, the travels and acts around 60 to 62 AD. Where was the letter written? Well, there's some debate on this. And if you real, really quick, if you're not in Ephesians, just flip there. We're, we're gonna be there for just a second. You'll see in Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, like this, this should be a pretty easy problem to solve on the English side of the equation. Because in 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, okay? So, okay, he's writing to the saints in Ephesus, pretty easy thing. What's fascinating about it is the phrase in Ephesus is not found in some of the original Greek manuscripts. And this is why there's debate. So I just, more than anything, I don't wanna get into a lot of detail. I just want you to make, make you aware. If you, go, you know, Google sometimes like is our worst enemy, you know, it brings up stuff we didn't know. Like I'm pretty sure I've got every disease 
known to man right now because I, my symptoms match what Google says my symptoms would be if I had this terrible disease, right? So, so sometimes it happens that way in the Bible. So you'll, you'll find that it's not, it's not found in some of the, the key, what they would say the key most preeminent Greek manuscripts, the, the phrase in Ephesus is not found. Now, what that's caused people to conclude is that maybe this was an incircular letter. In other words, he didn't put a, an exact audience because he designed it to go kind of in a circle in Asia Minor to the other churches. And some have suggested, well, maybe Paul put a blank in there so that when they got the copy from Paul, they made their own copy and then they filled in their church's name and then they passed Paul's copy to the next church, let them make their copy, fill in their name so that each church had their own copy of this, this letter. So some people have suggested that. The problem is even the, the Greek manuscripts that omit in Ephesus, there's no blank space, okay? There's, there's no blank space to fill in another name. It's just, it's just missing. And these aren't all the manuscripts, just some of them, nor have they found a manuscript with another city in its place. So that view is probably not the best view. And, and again, there's, I mean, there's hundreds and thousands of pages written on this debate. So if you want to read more, we can t- I can point you to maybe some good resources. But so it's best to assume, in my opinion, that it's, it's to, to the saints in Ephesus. However, what probably happened is it was addressed to Ephesus with, again, that, that cyclical nature designed to it. And the reason I say that is because Paul spent over two years here and he doesn't address anyone by name. That's odd. When you, you've been somewhere, you don't say hi to this person, hi to this person, hi to this person. He doesn't do that in the book of Ephesians. He does it in Romans. He didn't even go there. He hadn't even been there when he wrote that. He did it in Colossians. He hadn't even been there and he did that. Ephesians, he doesn't do that. And so that's probably an argument that the, that the letter was a general letter designed to maybe get passed around. In fact, other New Testament books did that. I'm going to flip back here to the map. You guys know the book of Revelation. That's exactly what it was designed to do because the book of Revelation has what? Seven letters to seven churches. And so those were passed around. You, I don't know if you can see them or not, but all these little churches here with the cross in them, those are, Apostle John wrote Revelation from here, sent it to Ephesus, and then it would just work around in a circle to all these churches. And I'll bring that back up in a second. Actually, you know what? Yes, I'll just do it because I'm here. Sorry. Sorry you had to participate in that conversation with myself. All right, Colossians 4.16, which, which again fits this idea. That is, it's going around the circle as it comes from Philadelphia, it then comes to Laodicea. Now, everyone remembers Laodicea, right? I don't want to make the sound to give you a hint to remember Laodicea, but it's like, you know, puke, you know, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, right? That's, that's the letter in Revelation chapter three. What's the next city after Laodicea? Colossae, all right? Go to Colossians 4.16. And notice he says, when this epistle, speaking of the Colossian epistle, is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. I think personally, that's the letter of Ephesians that we have in our hands. It had, been, it had been cycled around in Asia Minor, and that letter was now coming back to Colossae. We'll get more into those details here in a second. The other thing that we learn, and I, I just have these verses down, we won't cover them, but Tychicus and Onesimus, we know delivered this letter, or at least Tychicus is mentioned in Ephesians 6 as the deliverer of this letter. He also is the one who delivered the letter to the Colossians. So most likely coming from Paul from Rome with the letters in hand, dropped it off at Ephesians and then went on to Colossians to deliver the Colossian letter. And what other letter? Philemon, right? Because who did Tychicus have with him? He had Onesimus with him, who was a runaway slave. 
And so I'm sure as, <laughs> as Onesimus and Tychicus are getting close, Onesimus is like, hey, give him that letter first. Because that letter said, don't hurt me. We'll give him the letter of the Colossians second, but give him that one first. Anyways, those were the deliverers of the message. Now, let's move into a historical perspective of Ephesus. I just want to kind of get some general history here. Then I want to cover Paul's personal history in Ephesus as we work through Acts, and then we'll make some kind of concluding points. Historical perspective of Ephesus. Very important to understand, Ephesus was a huge city, was a prominent city. It was third in the Roman Empire to Rome and Athens. It probably had a population of 200 to 250,000 people. It had great positioning on the map because it had roads coming through it, and it had a port, and it had a large river. And so all of those things made this a very prominent city. One of the things that we learn about it is this river, this Keister River, which we'll talk about here more in a second. It was also noted for its theater, which sat 25,000 people. That's more than State Farm Arena for the Atlanta Hawks. If you want to put it in perspective, that's a lot of people that could fit in this theater. And then probably most known for its temple, the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana. And we won't get into a lot of the details there because we've got kids in the room. Let's just say it wasn't a very moral place. And if you ever, I won't even say that either because I don't want other people Googling it. But you can find out a lot about the temple of Artemis and what was going on there. Part of the worship were temple prostitutes. And I think that gives you kind of a, a good picture of what was happening there. Now, let's talk about three of these things, the Keister River. Interestingly enough, the Keister River Although it was, it was initially a positive thing for the city of Ephesus, Ephesus, it became a negative thing. There was a king who tried to open it up more, make it deeper. You know, we just came through Savannah. Oh, goodness gracious. We just went to Savannah a couple of weeks ago, and you see these big ships with cargo, I mean, floating in this water. Like, how, how is it not scraping the bottom, you know? And so sometimes people will get in and they'll engineer, they'll, they'll make things deeper so that sh- bigger ships can get through. Well, a king tried to do that, but the problem with the Keister River, it had a silting problem. In fact, it has a major silting problem. So when this king tried to do it, it actually had the opposite effect. It ended up closing the harbor over time. In fact, if you go to Ephesus today, a city that was once on the harbor is now four miles inland. Okay, that's how bad this silting problem was. Part of this might've been happening in Paul's day because as we get into Acts 20, I'll mention it when we get there again, Paul on his way back to Jerusalem doesn't stop in Ephesus. Where does he stop? further south in Miletus, and then he calls for the Ephesian elders to come see him. That might have been because the port was starting to have issues. Again, just some perspective on the history in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis, this temple platform was larger than an NFL football field. It was huge. In fact, this is kind of a picture or a rendering of what the temple might have looked like, and those are people on the stairs, so you can kind of get a picture of the the scale. It was it was huge. In fact, what we learn about it from history, it was built of marble. Uh, it had cypress wood paneling. It was it had cedar roof beams. It was the largest known building in antiquity. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this is a very prominent building for for tourism to have people in. In fact, people from all over the world came to see it. They would come into Ephesus just to see the temple. Many of the men would then patronize the temple prostitutes while they were there. And that was kind of an acceptable thing in this religion. So life in Ephesus revolved around this temple. 
This is why when we get to the end of chapter two, I mean, this is so exciting about Ephesians when we put context. This is why when we get to the end of chapter two and Paul is talking about how God is making the church into a building, into a temple, it has some significance to the readers because as they come out of the church after they're reading their letter, right in their face is the temple of Artemis and they're saying, you know what? I got a better temple. I got a better house <laughs> than that. And that is, that's impressed me all my life. Maybe my mom and dad actually made their money off of that temple, but now I'm involved in something better, something greater, something bigger than even that. And you can see why some of these things come out and it's just so incredible. You know, one of the things too, history tells us is that the emperor Tiberius in AD 26, he actually wanted to build a temple of himself so that he could be worshiped in Ephesus. And when he sent the scouting team, they said, forget Ephesus, man, They're, they are too committed to Artemis. Like you know, no one here will even worship you. That's how bad it was. And so across the Roman empire, little temples began to, to, to spring up to Artemis. And you can see how pervasive her worship was. You see it in, in other places in Asia Minor, Greece, France, Spain, lots of different places in the Roman empire. So this was a huge deal. The third thing in terms of historical perspective, you need to know about Ephesus, which will give us some insight. It was the center for magic and sorcery in the Roman world. If you were a magician, a sorcerer, a charlatan, a trickster, a deceiver of any kind, you found a welcome home in the city of Ephesus. In fact, it was by far the most hospitable to those types of people. And so we're going to see why that's perspective and why Acts 19, 18 through 19 is so significant. We're going to read that here in a second. So you don't need to turn there unless you want to, but new believers, they, they actually got saved. They, they recognized that magic and sorcery was, was not how the Lord wanted them to live. They burned their books. It says they, they burnt the books and the value of them were 50,000 pieces of silver. That was 50,000 days wages, which if you took the average person, that was over 136 years of their life of wages. Factor that with modern day money. You're talking about millions of dollars of books they burnt right there on the spot. And let me give you one concluding comment about the city of Ephesus. I feel like Mark Wright here bringing up something that seems totally not related, but you'll see why it's related. He has fun. I think he enjoys that in Sunday school class, actually. He'll write stuff on the board. You're like, oh, I thought we were studying Galatians. What does this have to do with anything? And he weaves it in. This is one of them. That's a wild boar. That's a fish on a grill. There is a a mystical legend associated with the founding of the city of Ephesus. I just thought you'd find this interesting. The founders were having a difficult time in selecting a site for the city. And so they consulted an oracle, somebody that was into sorcery. And they told them that they should build a city wherever a fish and a wild boar should point out. So fish point, I mean, how's the fish gonna, you know what I mean? So this is gonna be pretty special. So what happened is they were at a meal where some fishermen were cooking some fish. A fish with a live coal jumped out of the fire, fell into some straw, ignited a thicket, set this thicket on fire. Wild boar was sleeping there, got scared by the fire, ran off, and and the men traced the boar through the woods. He was frightened, and then he laid down, allegedly, on the very site where the temple of Artemis was built. And it just goes to show you the mystical nature of of the polytheism that Paul took the gospel to. 
In fact, do you know that an effigy of a wild boar stood beside the main street of the city of Ephesus all the way until 400 AD? So that was their history. That was the city's story. Now go with me to Acts chapter 15. Let's look at Paul's personal history in Ephesus. And we'll move through this quickly. We'll, we'll stop and read a couple of verses here and there. But Paul and Barnabas broke up their missionary team in Acts chapter 15. And then he and Silas decided that they were going to revisit the churches of Galatia. And then naturally they wanted to keep moving west into Asia Minor. Okay, we see this in Acts chapter 16. But in Acts chapter 16, 6, we see this really odd. It, it, this is one of the oddest statements for me in all the Bible. It doesn't confuse me. It just, it just shows that God has a timing for things. And, and his timing is not always our timing. Because in Acts 16, 6, it says, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Well, that's where Ephesus was. So they were initially forbidden by the Spirit of God to preach the word of God to them in Asia. And you're like, what? I thought the Spirit of God would be all for preaching. But in this case, the timing wasn't right. And so what we see is in Acts 16, all the way down to Acts 18, 18, the Spirit of God has them bypass Asia Minor go to Macedonia and then work their way down through Greece all the way to Corinth. And that happens all the way through chapter 18, 18. And here they are, they're, they're over here. This is the churches of Galatia. It makes sense. They're just gonna go west into Asia, but the spirit says, no, no. He, he jumps them, leapfrogs them over here. And then he starts going Philippi chapter 16, Thessalonica chapter 17 of Acts, Berea chapter 17 of Acts, Athens chapter 17 of Acts, Corinth chapter 18 of Acts. And that's where he moves down. So he completely bypasses Asia Minor because the Spirit of God led him that direction. Now, when he leaves Corinth in Acts 18, 18, he briefly visits Ephesus. So he goes from Corinth over to Ephesus. He takes Aquila and Priscilla. Remember them, that, the, the power couple in the New Testament? I mean, they're just, they work so well together as a couple. He takes them with him. He begins to reason with the Jews in the synagogues and he can't stay Long, Why? Because he's got a feast in Jerusalem that he wants to get to. So he's kind of in a hurry. He wants to stay really quick and talk with the Jews in Ephesus. He wants to make a presence. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. And who do they bump into in Ephesus? We all know this story. I don't know if we knew it happened in Ephesus. The native uh, speaker there, Apollos, who was a, a man mighty in scriptures that they were able to more fully explain the word of God and how everything fit together, including Jesus Christ. So that's where it all happened in Ephesus. They were, they were there, Aquila and Priscilla, after Paul had left. Now, Paul goes to Jerusalem and now he comes back to Ephesus just as he had promised, because that was his initial intent. He bumps into a dozen of John the, type, uh, John the Baptist's disciples. Now, these disciples had left John the Baptist's ministry before Jesus arrived on the scene because they were very confused and still were holding to the teaching of John the Baptist. And Paul simply says this, basically in Acts 19.4, do you know what John's repentance was all about? I think that's a great question today. Because many people still don't know what John the Baptist's repentance was all about. They think it's, you got to turn from sin. That's not what the message was. Repentance by definition means change of mind. What were they change their mind about? Let's go to Acts 19.4 and let Paul explain that to us. Acts chapter 19, verse 4. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying what? To the people that they should believe on him and would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. 
They were to change their mind about what they were trusting in to get them into the kingdom of God. They needed to put their trust in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus Christ told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And if you're not born again, you're not gonna see the kingdom of God. How do you get born again? When you follow that passage in John three, it's when you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the spirit of God births you from above. You're completely born again. That has to happen. This was John's message. Change your mind. If God wanted to raise children from Abraham up from these stones, he could do it. That's not how you get into the kingdom. It's not through your birth. It's not through your religion. It's not through any of these things. It's through the finished work of Jesus Christ and him alone. That's how you're born. Again, so he shares this with John the Baptist's disciples. They respond. We'll move quickly. Verse eight, Paul then moves into the synagogue after he's done with the disciples. He boldly reasons for them with three months concerning the things of the kingdom of God. However, at some point, that overall response turned hostile and negative. We see in verse nine that they spoke evil of the way. And when that happened, Paul departed and he found an open school, a school of Tyrannus was a gentleman there, I guess opened his school to him. And he ended up teaching there for two years. Now, this is very important to see. I want you to see it for yourself in verse 10. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. How many people heard the word of the Lord? All in Asia. So Paul's impact was huge. It was astounding. He taught in this little school, but what ended up happening, it appears, and as we play out the New Testament, even the history in the book of Acts from chapter 19 going forward, the men he trained then took the message other places and shared the gospel and trained others discipleship in action. And we see it. And so some of those men you've probably heard of, Philemon, Epaphras, Epaphroditus. Epaphras, Epaphroditus, there's some debate. Might be the same guy, maybe a nickname there. But anyways, if it's two guys, he's there. Tychicus, Trophimus, the Ephesian. You see all of these men likely impacted by that time that Paul is teaching at the school of Tyrannus. And then what we see as we go forward In verse 11, we see that Paul's ministry was validated and verified by unusual miracles. Notice the text says that, not me. Now, what does unusual mean? It means it's not usual. It means it wasn't something that continued to be expected. And yet, what we find in verse 11 and 12 is we see God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or apron. You wonder where all the televangelists get their little handkerchief deal from? It's right here. It's right here. And what does it say one verse earlier? Is that the normal thing to expect? No, it's unusual. <laughs> that means it's, I mean, I, you know, it's not usual. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not to be expected. But look at what was happening. They would bring handkerchiefs or aprons brought from his body to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. God was doing a miraculous thing through the ministry of the apostle Paul. Why? That's the million dollar question. Well, what did we learn earlier? There were sorcerers and magicians and charlatans and itinerant teachers all over the place. Paul's just another one of those guys. And yet when God started dropping hand grenades of miracles by the ministry of the apostle Paul, people stood up, took notice, said, this guy's legit. This guy's from the one true God. It validated him. It verified his message. In fact, we see that and we jump down to verse 17. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them. And guess what? The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. That's what it was all about. That's what all of these miracles were all about. 
Again, he was standing out. It seemed to catch the attention of the sorcerers and the magicians. And then we see that the ministry was so impactful. Just imagine, I don't want to cause anybody to get upset or lose focus here, but Major League Baseball just removed the All-Star game from Atlanta. Now, we know as, as a community that that's going to have an impact more than just the game. They didn't just cost the stadium some hot dog sales and some Coke sales, right? What else was impacted? When, you, when you've got a big event coming in, you've got tourism. All the tourism sites in the city would benefit from that influx of people. You've got transportation. You've got hotels. You've got other restaurants that all would have benefited. We, and, and the community at large would have had an influx of money come in that we would all benefit from. We'll take that and multiply it by 10 and you've got the picture of the temple of Artemis and how much every ministry in that, or I'm sorry, every business, every livelihood in that area was tied to this temple worship. And so when people started getting saved, they stopped worshiping me at the temple. It was gonna impact the bottom line. It was gonna impact people's personal livelihoods. And so in Acts 19, 21 through 41, we see this incredible riot erupt in the city of Ephesus. And so following this commotion, Paul decides to leave Ephesus. He goes back up through Macedonia to visit the disciples there. And then he wanted to get back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And he had been collecting financial contributions for the poor saints in Jerusalem. He wanted to deliver that personally. And so as he's finishing up his visit in Macedonia, he starts his way back to Jerusalem, but he makes one stop. Where does he stop? Again, not Ephesus, probably because maybe because the, the river was silting up. It was, it was having trouble as a port at that point. Or possibly he knew that if he went to Ephesus, he'd never get to Jerusalem. It's like there's many people here that when we try to say bye to each other, we might as well just add 30 minutes to that goodbye because we end up talking for another 30 minutes. And I think Paul was probably that way too. He's like, I better not go to Ephesus. I may never get out of here, you know, because he's going to enjoy the fellowship. So he goes down to Miletus, but he calls for the Ephesian elders. Interesting. The Ephesian elders. He doesn't call for the Colossian elders. He doesn't call for the Laodicean elders. Somehow he singles out this church. He brings them down. We read about that in Acts chapter 20. And what we gather from that conversation is that this was, was probably, Paul probably thought this was the last time he was going to see them. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Sorry, most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more and they accompanied him to the ship. They thought, Paul, they'd never see him again. You know, um, there had been multiple prophecies made that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem, but he, he marched on. And what he finds in Jerusalem is he gets arrested. He spends two years in a jail cell in Caesarea. He appeals to, C- to Caesar and then he gets sent to Rome. And that's where we end the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 28, the very last verses, verse, or verse 30, it says, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his rented house, received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. It is there that Paul writes this epistle to the Ephesians. So that's Paul's history getting us up to that point. Let me make a couple of final closing comments here. What caused the actual writing of Ephesus? We try to put historically, try to create the the history here as best we can. This is just an assumption putting together what we know about the other epistles. But while Paul was sitting under house arrest, contemplating probably his upcoming trial, his potential work in the West, remember he had written the Romans saying he wanted to go to Spain. Now he's in Rome, but he wasn't there the way he wanted to be there. 
but he wants to get to Spain eventually. And as he's sitting there, startling news comes from the East. What's the startling news? Well, the women are studying about this on Tuesday nights, by the way, and I think it's this Tuesday it's going again. Okay. So there's an announcement for that this Tuesday. Continue to study the book of Colossians. But from, he probably got word from Colossae that, that a false teaching had either taken effect at the church or was about to find its inroads into the church. So he says, I, I got I to write about this. Then at the same time or similar time, Onesimus, a runaway slave from Colossae, appears before Paul with his confession of abandoning and robbing his owner Philemon. And so you got all these pieces coming together. And so this is what I believe Paul did. He decided several things. Write to the Colossians with appropriate warnings. Number two, write to Philemon, urging him to take Onesimus back as a freeman. And then probably finish the letter that we now know as the book of Ephesians because he was covering this general teaching on the church and send that at the same time that he sends these other letters. And that's probably how this came to pass, although we can't be dogmatic on that. What was his main purpose for writing? It's similar to the book of Romans because it was designed to be a brief summary of Paul's theology. Bear with me for a second. The book of Romans is a summary of the theology of God's righteousness. And we've, we talked about that ad nauseum, but you know what? I never get tired of talking about God's method of righteousness because what he teaches in the book of Romans is God requires righteousness. He tells us that man lacks righteousness. And then he talks about how God provides righteousness for man in the gospel. And then he goes on to tell us after that, how does God outwork righteousness in the believer's life? And that's what the book of Romans is summarily about God's righteousness. The book of Ephesians is a summary of the theology of the mystery of the church. In the same way, Romans was a summary of of God's righteousness, requirement, provision, outworking of it. This book is gonna be the summary of God's theology of the church, the mystery of the church, the dispensation, as chapter three calls it, the dispensation of grace. And if you're like, wow, I've never heard that D word before or whatever, we'll talk about it when we get into chapter three. But a mystery, remember, is this, is that it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Do you know, did you know that the church was not revealed in the Old Testament? That that was progressively revealed later in time through the apostles and prophets. We're going to see that in chapter three. And it should blow their mind because the Old Testament always spoke of Jewish blessing And it always spoke of Gentile blessing as they touched the Jew. As they converted to Judaism, Gentiles could be blessed. What Paul is going to reveal in chapter 3 would be that Jew-Gentile unified together with the Messiah and having all spiritual blessings that exist. That would have blown their minds. And it still should blow our minds today. That's the mystery of the church. And this is what this book is about. Christ in you, you in Christ, reciprocal union, any way you want to talk about it, a chain link fence that doesn't let you go. That's it. That's the picture of the book of Ephesians. Let me make a couple final comments, main themes. The church was created to be unified through her union with Jesus Christ and one another. You know, the term one is used 14 times in the book. In Christ is used 38 times. The preposition S-U-N, soon, we, we would read it, son, means together with. It's used 14 times. This is an emphasis of the book, this union with Jesus Christ, union with others. Not only that, but this unity we know can only happen as the Spirit of God is producing love. And here's what's so tragic about the church at Ephesus. They get this letter, 60, 62 A.D., 
30 years later, this is what Jesus writes to this church. You're doing all these things good. You're fighting false doctrine. You're rejecting false teachers. You got all this stuff going on. Revelation 2, 4, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. And you know, some people would react to that and say, see, we shouldn't focus on doctrine. We should just focus on Jesus Christ. And that's a pendulum swing in the wrong direction. We're gonna see that doctrine is what establishes you to have a vibrant, acceptable relationship with Jesus Christ. Doctrine is designed to drive you to relationship, not separate you from. Although that's a very normal and natural error that many people struggle with. But the reaction is not less doctrine. And I'll show you that here in the point after this. So believers need to know their value of their position in Christ. And we'll talk obviously a lot more about that as we go. But God does everything he does for believers. The way he accomplishes it, secures it, guarantees it is because he's placed you in Christ. That's the mechanism by which he does all that. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Knowledge of this and adjustment in our thinking toward this is designed to have practical impact in our daily life. Now, final main theme, and then we'll, we'll close. Believers need to understand and utilize the resources they have in Jesus to live out their daily lives. Watchman Nee is an old writer, and he, I think he artfully summed up the book of Ephesians in three words, sit, walk, stand. Sit, walk, stand. I love that description because what we're going to find in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is not going to ask you to do anything. Hear that again. Because I know we come to church, we want to hear a message, and we want the the pastor to go tell us what to do that week. Ain't going to happen in the book of Ephesians. Not that we're not going to exhort and encourage and challenge, but Paul's whole purpose in writing is sit, listen, absorb, receive, believe it. Respond in worship to what you're hearing. What's so fascinating about the book of Ephesians is there are 40 commands in the book. Now, this is going to blow you away. 40 commands in the book. There's only one command in the first three chapters. You know what it is? Remember. It's a mental command (laughs) to remember and to listen to what you're being taught. And then guess what? The first command that actually tells you to do something is at the end of chapter four. And so you've got 39 commands in the book of Ephesians from about Ephesians 4.25 to the end of the book. That's where the practical teaching comes in. And it's unfortunate because over the years, many believers just say, you know what? I'm just gonna jump to Ephesians four. I just want to be told what to do. And you know what the problem with that approach is? Is by the time Paul gets to 425, he is assumed that you have listened taken in, enjoyed, received worship, understood all the resources you you have in Jesus Christ so that you can actually execute the commands in an acceptable way. By jumping to Ephesians 4.25, it's like trying to mow your lawn without gas. It's, It's worse than that. It's trying to mow your lawn with a lawnmower that doesn't have an engine attached to it. That's what it's like. And yet that's exactly what we as believers oftentimes do. Just give me the practical. Give me the practical. Give me the practical. Tell me what to do. And I'm just going to tell you, Paul's not into that so much initially. He wants to tell you what to believe. He wants to tell you about your God. He wants you to marvel in what your God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to do. So sit. We're going to start there next week. Walk, you know, chapters four through six. How do, how do we live this out? Stand, stand in the victory that's yours in Jesus Christ. Chapter six, we'll get there. But next week, I want you to be ready to sit. You guys have done really well sitting this morning. I just want you to keep doing that as we go through the first three chapters. 
and bring your popcorn next week. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the book of Ephesians. And uh, Lord, we just look forward to diving into the riches contained therein. And would you guide and lead our study, Lord? Would you minister to the needs that each one of us have as we come into this room? Uh, As we go out of this room, would you just continue to minister to our needs? May we find in you, Lord, the only thing that will satisfy our soul. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.